How can theological reflection and imagination guide our work toward a better life together? Carrie Day is Associate Professor of Constructive Theology and African American Religion at Princeton Seminary. Her 2015 book, entitled Religious Resistance to Neoliberalism, Womanist and Black Feminist Perspectives, guided our conversation about economic theory, theological imagination, and what we should learn from the Black Lives Matter movement. You're listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. Carrie, thank you so much for talking with me today. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. So today we are talking about neoliberalism and economies and theology. So set the stage for us. What in the world do we mean when we say neoliberalism? Absolutely. Um, so uh, neoliberalism is um, this really obtuse word <laughs> that um, shows up within a number of different disciplines. Okay. So the first thing that I should say, I should offer as a caveat, is that um, depending on who you ask, which scholar you ask, you'll get a different sort of answer mm -hmm. as to what neoliberalism is. But um, for uh, my work um, uh, in this book and in the previous book that I wrote, Unfinished Business, um, I sort of define neoliberalism um, as uh, this retrieval of classical economic liberalism, um, most notably um, uh, uh, began by Adam Smith, who was an 18th century um, uh, moral philosopher and economist, which of course is very differently than how many economists would think about themselves today. Sure. Um, that Adam Smith and uh, most uh, uh, economists then understood themselves as doing what they did within the branch of moral philosophy. Mm. Um, and uh, there are scholars from the 70s and the 1980s that are attempt to sort of reclaim um, this idea of classical economic liberalism lays a fair free market economy. Mm -hmm. um, what I would argue, and I've argued this in my work, is different, is that whereas Adam Smith, um, who writes The Wealth of Nations, of course, before The Wealth of Nations, he writes the book The Theory of Moral, Moral, Moral Sentiments, which is rarely talked about, in which he um, uh, discusses that before we can even have a conversation about the kind of economic models we need to think about as a, a, a nation. We have to think about the kind of virtues um, that we want to embody as a community, mm -hmm. um, the kind of moral formation that is needed, virtues such as, such as empathy and sympathy mm -hmm. and care for the other. Um, and so this was sort of the classical economic liberalism of that day, although there are many critiques of Adam Smith no doubt. Um, we tend to think of these things now in silos. Like you have people right. who think about virtues and you have yeah. people who think about economies. That's right. That's right. And and to your point, um, when a classical economic liberalism, laissez-faire of Adam Smith, is reclaimed in the middle of the 20th century, most notably um, um, capitalism, capitalism and Freedom, um, which is uh, written by Milton Friedman. He's the most notable voice. Mm -hmm. um, they're reclaiming it, but in, in a profoundly different way. Economics, uh, in this case, the, the Chicago School of Economics, those scholars are in that particular school, they understand economics as a value-neutral science, right? Mm, that it's not yeah. connected to how we think about morals and norms and more broadly just the moral formation of a society. The economics is just not an economic question, but it's a question of how we live well together, mm -hmm. right? Um, and it has theological import. So here's where it gets really nitty-gritty for 
people of faith. That's right, for people of faith, because the question is, um, within free market ideology that understands itself as value neutral, as simply talking about how we accumulate more things, how we grow GDP, grow uh, gross domestic product, how we think about the accrual of wealth um, will lead to happiness or will lead to abundant abundance or what I refer to as progress, which is sort of a myth within this particular narrative, then it becomes really difficult, right, for um, many Christian communities who then marry the gospel um, of individual competition and of um, wealth to this particular free market ideological narrative. And so what neoliberalism is doing to sort of answer your question um, is it's um, reclaiming um, this idea that um, part of what it means for nations to progress and for them to experience abundance um, would be the deregulation of, of, of markets, the um, dismantling of welfare um, nets and uh, safety for the poor, which, of course, we know disproportionately affects women and children. Um, uh, and, 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 and really just it's sort of this principle of competition that not only guides the economic realms of society, but attempts to provide the moral terms of our basic existence, right? So it's saying something about who we should be as human beings, which is uh, profoundly problematic. Yeah. And one of the things you've talked about um, is hyper-competition and hyper-individualism. I think those are terms that are maybe easier to grasp and hold on to, like when we think about the way that we interact with one another and think you should be able to help yourself or pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Are those all tied up in this ideology that you're describing? Absolutely, um, most definitely. Uh, for ex- And let me just be clear, this is just not in sort of the, the broader discourse that we're even witnessing right now. Although I will say that we just, you know, we didn't start witnessing this idea that uh, the poor are culpable. Um, for their poverty now in this uh, what people refer to as the Trump moment. That's not a new thing. No, not it's it's not a new thing. I think it's been exacerbated that narrative. Um, this narrative is not only operated within the social sphere of society, but within uh, Christian communities. How we fundamentally understood um, um, uh, our call to uh, those those neighborhoods out uh, those neighborhoods where our churches are situated. Um, so, for example, you have a number of Christian preachers and pastors that actually from the pulpit preach that, you know, if a person is experiencing poverty or, or any kind of economic deprivation, it's because they have not worked hard enough, because they have not had enough faith, because they have not been good stewards, which completely sidesteps the sort of larger structural issues of exclusion that create uh, much of the poverty that we see uh, people facing. it, And just to offer this um, brief note that in speaking about poverty, it would not only be people that we might consider it as underemployed or unemployed, but a major group now that's facing a, a, a kind of economic uh, precarity that's horrible will be the working class poor. So, I mean, so again, um, um, how we talk about these questions of poverty um, are really, really important for how we look at people in this moment who are struggling. So neoliberalism is something you claim needs to be resisted. We're talking about huge systems. Hmm. 
right? We're talking about mm-hmm. economic systems and we're talking about government. Yeah, yeah. So, um, again, that's another uh, sort of uh, obtuse category that we throw around. Um, I refer to government as the state. Um, I, I use that term. And for me, it would be the different institutions, you know, social, political institutions that sort of constitute the state, the state's apparatus and the state's uh, uh, working. So that's everywhere from local forms of government to state our uh, um, uh, uh, electoral um, representatives at the state level to federal representatives, um, I would say, but as well as um, social and political leaders that may not be like elected representatives, but nevertheless, they're crucial to how we um, uh, to how a policy um, is shaped and implemented. So for me, that that would be government. Yeah. So when you talk about, you know, forming resistance. Or- yeah. Um, I mean, part of the question is, particularly when you talk about resisting um, the state or resisting government, um, I think it's important to acknowledge that um, there are diverse Christian traditions that would contest whether resistance itself should be properly seen as central to Christian identity and witness, right? Um, So you have some traditions that... um, Um, I I like to say overemphasize so you can hear my bias almost immediately, Um, but that emphasize, you know, that authorities and rulers of this world, of course, for them, according to scripture, should be obeyed, you know, because um, no matter what, God has um, ordained those those authorities and rulers. Um, of this world. And then you have other traditions, such as the tradition that I uh, come out of, black church tradition, where um, uh, that's uh, sort of a contextual question, right, of um, those times when uh, particular authorities are behaving in unjust ways and what is our call to resist against um, uh, those particular decisions or actions. And of course, uh, you know, there are there are communities that uh, sort of occupy the both end of what I just said, right? right? Um, but I guess the point here is that I at least wanted to mention that resistance itself as a Christian moral action is something that's not agreed upon exactly. Right. Um, but for me, the reason why I would argue that, that, that resistance to injustice um, is uh, important to, to Christian witness. Um, well, number one, because we see it within uh, the gospel narrative. I mean, you can speak of Jesus as well as the early uh, church community as a community that resists the imperial um, order, ideologies, practices, and actions of the day. And we're seen as being so dangerous. That's right. That the state acted against them. That absolutely, and so I sort of, uh, I sort of extend that logic to the book in religious resistance and neoliberalism. And part of the argument here is that there are communities that are actually resisting through their forms of religious protest. I primarily turn to women. Um, of the African and Caribbean diaspora and in, 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 in actually um, uh, South America as well as a way of talking about uh, this is what, you know, the, these community, uh, these, uh, I think, three communities of women, this is, this is what they're doing. These are their forms of resistance. So tell, um, can you tell us a story? Like, make this really concrete. Yeah. What, what's an example of what that looks like? Absolutely. Now, I'll, there's one that comes to mind that's not in my book, but I think it's really an important story. Um, for example, I, there are a number of people that perhaps have not yet read a book um, entitled At the Dark End of the Street by Danielle McGuire, um, an amazing historian who um, maps 
that uh, maps uh, sort of the grassroots movement uh, among black women beginning in the 1940s. What's interesting when we talk about the civil rights movement is that the civil rights movement is often seen as beginning in the 1960s with the SELC King um, and that particular group. Um, but it's important to remember that um, before King and other clergy uh, persons actually establish that organization, that they are being socialized into a form of protest. They're being taken to these sites down south, um, the grassroots movements and organizations of black women. And as early as the 1940s, um, these women, such as Rosa Parks, um, were doing grassroots movement and social protests and organizing against forms of sexual lies violence. Um, this was sexual violence against black women. Um, and so this is an example of um, how these women's forms of social protest and organizing, in this case against uh, sexualized violence, they're, of course, employing their own um, um, Christian um, uh, sensibilities about the matter. Um, but they're also protesting the state, not just um, uh, white communities, but the state that sits by and, do, and, and does nothing, right? Um, so to me, that would be an example um, of the kind of uh, important subversive Christian uh, moral protest that we've seen within the context of the United States that women around the world are, are enacting. This also has to be linked to our idea of hope, mm -hmm. what kind of things we hope for yeah. and long for, and therefore that determines to some extent what we work for. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about that, how hope plays yeah. into this and the kinds of things that believers hope for? Absolutely. Well, you know, I make this distinction in my book um, between what I refer to as radical hope and mere optimism. Uh, okay, so let's <laughs> and, break that down. Yeah, yeah, and I think that um, um, that these are uh, two very different things. Um, the idea of mere optimism um, being this idea that um, things can get better um, um, because essentially we believe in the goodness of the structures um, that are already in place, that, that all we need to do essentially is to tweak what already exists. And I'm going to give an example as a way to concretize what I'm saying. Mm -hmm. um, all we need to do is sort of tweak mm -hmm. um, what we are living in in this present moment. Mm -hmm. um, and that if we do that, inevitably, um, that we will experience the amelioration or even the eradication right. of what of what um, of whatever particular suffering you know is transpired, which is like an outlook of trust, right? We kind of trust that uh -huh. things are inherently good. That's right, and we're just gonna like make them better. It, absolutely, absolutely. Um, uh, and you know, this could be said was you know was a case. And I'm only, I only keep bringing up the civil rights movement because you know February is approaching. We just uh, honored a Martin Luther King's uh, mm -hmm. birthday. Um, that this would have, you know, been the perspective of those that wanted things sort of to, to get better within um, the uh, boundaries and the laws of segregation. I mean, you had not yeah. only um, um, uh, white communities, that is Christian communities, that felt that way, but because of the violence of white communities and the states, you also had um, uh, some African-American communities that simply felt like the best way was through the self-determination of the black community as a nation in and of itself. Mm -hmm. um, and so it was merely about sort of tweaking and improving what, what already existed. And one could even say 
um, I would imagine that there were a number of people that thought the work that Ella Baker and Septima Clark and, and King, the work that they were doing just seemed um, preposterous because the question was, how can things ever change? Yeah. Given the all-encroaching nature of the state, mm-hmm. of the fact that we've been living within within Jim Crow for decades, and before that, of course, slavery. So I would imagine that people, um, you know, uh, I could understand in some ways the fatalism um, yeah. that perhaps some were drawn to, but there were others, and I would say the majority, as we see, that were not drawn to a kind of fatalism, but believed in a radical hope. And the way I define radical hope is a sort of newness of life that emerges, right? That's a radical disruption, even rupture, from um, what is being experienced in the present, in the present moment. Um, and, and so, I mean, part of it, I mean, I could imagine that part of the charge for me uh, uh, towards this um, this claim of radical hope could be a kind of utopianism. Mm, sure. <laughs> you, know, and, uh, you know, that this is utopian, this is idealistic, because it is the case that with the civil rights movement, you know, with the legislation that was passed, it did not eradicate, right? Well, all sure, and now there's the structural of racism. A new, of a that, new absolutely. Yes. A- absolutely. Yeah. Um, but, but, I, but I do think that... Um, that um, the civil rights movement, just like the grassroots movement that I discussed among women that were attempting to um, challenge and fight forms of, of sexualized violence, that all of these are sort of um, uh, seeds that have been planted that give us an idea of what it means to resist the state mm-hmm. um, with all of our power and to speak um um, in a very dangerous way about a preferable future. Yeah. Um, and to me, that is an exercise of profound and radical hope to not allow the state to um, provide the terms of your existence, right? Yeah. Um, even the existence of your humanity, the moral terms um, of your existence. So so to me, radical hope is so critically important in this moment, especially in this political moment, yeah. again, where um, people feel very resigned. Do you see some contemporary communities, either that you're a part of or that you've read about right now, who you feel like are really embodying a radical hope mm, yeah. in this particular place and time in this moment? For me, um, I think that the most powerful embodiment of radical hope, it's been the Black Lives Matter movement Mm. for me. Um, BLM um, really has practiced, to me, the power um, of defiance. Um, You know, it, it hasn't been so much about but I think that is a goal of whether we can resist and overturn the practices of the state that um, uh, that do not value the lives of black and brown bodies. But it's also been the case, I would say, on an existential level, a deeply theological level, that it's also been about what it means to assert one's humanity in the face of dehumanizing forces. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, and and to do that without apology. Um, And so to me, Black Lives Matter has embodied um, um, 
powerful acts of resistance and this sense of radical hope that even though um, nothing in the present sort of signals um, that police brutality or issues with mass incarceration that disproportionately affect brown and and black bodies is going to go away. But nevertheless, there is a radical hope that through um, this movement's forms of uh, organizing and social protest and through the practices of defiance, through the assertion of their own humanity, that something new can emerge. And for me, that possibility that something new can emerge against these forces is um, profoundly hopeful. You talk about a little bit about how neoliberalism can stunt the imagination. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm curious if there, there are ways we can foster that our ability to reimagine what's possible. Because mm. it sounds like sometimes we think we have a lack of resources, mm-hmm. but I think often we have a lack of imagination. Yes, yes. I, no, I think that you're absolutely right. Um, something that I uh, briefly um, talked about uh, in the book, Religious Resistance and Neoliberalism, was the profound importance of the arts mm. in fostering um, imagination and moral um, imagination. Um, it seems like, you know, historically, arts I mean, arts has been at the center of um, um, imagining preferable worlds. The arts has been at the center of bringing people together across language, across religion, across class, across ethnicity, across genders, um, um, as a way of um, uh, promoting mutual understanding. Mm-hmm. Um, and so... Uh, for me, I think it's really important to turn. And I, I actually think that there are um, a number of different groups and movements that are participating mm-hmm. um, uh, in uh, acts of morally imagining uh, through the arts. I will give this example. I was of just going to ask. I was, yes, yes. <laughs> of um, me being deeply moved about two years ago, I um, delivered a, um, a lecture uh, in Berlin, uh, Germany. And while I was there, I had the opportunity to um, meet um, uh, a young man, Cameroonian activist, um, that founded what uh, is an organization uh, called Savvy Contemporary. And Savvy Contemporary, um, what this organization, they un- really, you know, he understands this organization as a movement. Um, they uh, essentially employ the arts as a way of morally imagining a new world for the African diaspora. Um, and so one of the things that this particular organization or movement uh, does is they hold exhibitions throughout the year in Berlin. Um, and these exhibitions oh, um, uh, uh, have everything from uh, performance art to visual art to, of course, literature, music is there. Um, and what they, what he refers to as decolonial aesthetics, mm, okay. um, this idea that art has always participated in how in the knowledge production process. It's always participated in the very categories we use to evaluate the world Mm -hmm. around us. So, for example, ideas of taste, whether that's low taste or high taste, it's always been connected, right, to someone that's specifying what high taste is. So if we're talking about music, classical music is seen as something that's high taste, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's classical, but that's been European music Um, in contrast to 
rap, mm -hmm. right, which has been seen, or R&B, which has been seen as um, sort of um, uh, not uh, taste in the sense of cultured taste. Mm -hmm. And so uh, this particular movement and their um, work in decolonial aesthetics is saying there's something about art that can help us reimagine what is truth, what is beauty, what's justice, mm -hmm. what's love, right? Yeah. Um, in this moment of hyper-global capitalism um, where um, it seems that the only human beings that matter are elites, right? Um, uh, so so for me, that's one example of a movement. Um, they're very courageous. They're dreaming dangerously of what it means to employ the arts in their forms of protest um, mm -hmm. against um, um, uh, colonial or white supremacists or global capitalist um, forces that are attempting to dehumanize yeah. um, marginalized populations. Yeah. So it seems that the arts can be an avenue to reclaim humanity yes. and, and, in a sense, display mm -hmm. an alternative. That's right. You know, visually or through music. Or, um, and I'm curious, I'm trying to link this back to the economic yeah. models and yeah. In some ways, in my own head, these seem like they still sit in separate camps. But do you think that the arts can foster the kind of imagination that could transform an economy? I, I do, because, again, what I think is often dismissed or ignored um, is that ideas and practices of economy are just not about how we think about the basic distribution of resources. It is about that, mm -hmm. but it's not just about that. Mm -hmm. It's not singularly about that. It's also about how we think about the quality of our lives together. And to me, when you're speaking about the quality of our lives together, that becomes a normative question. Yeah. That it becomes a moral question about the kinds of norms and values that will then guide what it means to live together well. Um, and so, uh, for example, in talking about how the arts contribute to uh, new moral visions of economy, the arts then can provide um, this normative moment. It can provide, in some ways, a moral blueprint of what it means to practice, say, deep solidarity, what it means to practice care and empathy, right? Empathy is something that we sort of throw around and talk about, but, you know, empathy, what it means to really um, walk in someone else's shoes, to try to imagine mm -hmm. the life world of the other person, um, and, and based on that, what their needs might be. Mm -hmm. um, that all of these sort of um, uh, conversations are normative questions, but then th these issues are deeply connected to how we decide on particular economic practices and policies. Mm -hmm. So, so again, they play e out in all these other ways. Right? That's right. That's right. So again, economy it is just not about the material question. It is also about the question of what do we value as a community living together. You've been listening to The Distillery at Princeton Theological Seminary. I'm your host, Sherry Osting. On our production and research team, we have Garrett Mostowski and Nee Otto Abrahams. Christy Holly works the creative design angle. From the whole team at Princeton Seminary, thanks for listening. Thank you.